It's gonna be like old economy radio. Cowboys don't walk. Don't go to the Watford City Strip Club. Because that's when they get you. Yeah, because they can't figure out how to be masculine, so they make the wrong choice. Okay, I mean, I guess, I suppose that's interesting. Oh, here he is. I have a uh, text message from uh, Dr. K. Confused. What is Riverside? I believe it's... I believe it's an Irish form of dance. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> he was asking me to pay nine dollars. I don't know. I just didn't realize I was, could be a guest. I. Uh, All right. I almost brought my really ex- uh, fancy headphone that we got for the original season of Care Herd in from my office. I even put it in its bag, and then I uh, left it there. So I have to use a <laughs> headphone <laughs> cleverly. Nice. I must confess that I, I didn't just bring a few. I, I just oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm gonna be book shamed. Every book, every book um, sits behind four other books. I'm only gonna talk about one book, but there's four others behind it. That just in case. It. So I just brought a whole. A whole just pile. in case. Yes. Yeah. Right. Just. I just can't decide. Okay. Look, Dad, have I ever shown you my? Uh, these are these fancy uh, Corbett, uh, Corbett versus Dempsey uh, Sun Ra reproductions. And they're, uh, they've been reproduced, like, really authentically to his, to the original, uh, you know, the original typed, I mean, you can't really see it on the little grainy camera, but uh, it's re- they're really, really uh, totally unnecessary things. But even, you know, some of them that were album inserts are reproduced as little album inserts that are just loose, loose sheets of paper. And in the original, like, blue uh, mimeograph, uh, mimeograph forms... Nice. Oh, I'm looking. I'm looking way too stuffy for this. I gotta. Oh yeah, that's much better. There. Do you get a special provost office, or is that just your? Uh, oh uh, no, normal this theme? is the this is the special provost office with nice. uh, stuff. What's what's stuff? What's the provenance of all those artifacts behind you? Have you checked I, them all? Or are they all stolen from from indigenous native uh, lands? They're, um, you know, I have, of course I have. Um, they're all, it's very opportunistic, and they're all gifts from Asian universities, because when you get distinguished visitors from other universities, which universities bring you gifts? Asian universities. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. So... Actually, I, yeah, I, that makes sense. I have a I have a place in my office where I've been <clears throat> collecting all the gifts that uh, uh, Asian students have given me, uh, with the hope of at some point displaying them. But I, I, of course, I, I never will because I'm afraid it will be very um, inappropriate to, in any way, you know, stigmatize that gift exchange culture or. You know, thematize it, but I have a special section. It'll put pressure on on future students too when they walk in and they see, like what their peers have given them. It'll it'll create create a a little economy of its own. I'm told. I just love they're so they're so dear to me because they are so incredibly thoughtful. And I mean, I do have one on my door, which is actually a fan that a student commissioned to uh, with my name in in uh, Chinese characters. That yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna. I have another shelf, which is an on camera that has 
normal sort of stuff, higher ed and you, and how to bureaucratize your bureaucracy, you know, normal administrator type books that I'm going to swap out with a bison bone from North Dakota, 5000 BC, and an Atari cartridge and personalized the digital office. Press digital press books. Digital press books, exactly. Copies of North Dakota Quarterly, which should be at arm's uh, so reach, but for some reason aren't. I'm going to move over the dean's office collection. But it's been it's been like a highs of nine degrees, which to Bill is warm. But, Balmy. Um, I'm not, I'm not moving nothing till the weather warms up, which was this afternoon. We're up to 35. So, uh, that move will happen tomorrow and the day after. So we're in the mid twenties here. So, you know, this is, this is the halcyon days. <laughs> yeah. So we should, um, uh, so this is the reboot of, uh, it's not reboot. We've been on a brief, a very brief, uh, probably, probably a COVID hiatus, We'll just go with that. So it was what? Uh, season three ended six months ago. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I actually have no recollection of season three. I thought we, we did season two, but but maybe, I, maybe, maybe I'm confused. I don't know. I think we did season three, but it's been... I don't think we've done an episode since I moved to Michigan. Nah. So the uh, page says it's been many many years but i prefer the lie uh we went on a brief covid hiatus as many people did but now we're back for let's say season four <laughs> yeah it is season three five years ago richard <laughs> <laughs> so, there you go <laughs> well i mean we're cutting edge we knew it was coming and wanted some prep time <laughs> We're, let's just emphasize the slow archaeology, right. right? It's like we're, we, we've gotten so slow that we've almost rejected anything that involves social media. <laughs> yeah, we, we refuse to, to operate on the pace of the digital. But one, yeah. one, but thing, one, we one thing we consistently did wrong absolutely did wrong, every absolutely episode. Every. Um, and so this is, so we're in season three or season two? Season four. Season four. So one thing we consistently did wrong in season one, two, and three is we never introduced ourselves. And since we're an audio podcast, we're supposed to say, I'm Richard Rothis, so that they can associate a voice with a name. So I'm Richard Rothis. Oh, that's my turn. Uh, I'm Bill Carraher. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm Costis Corrales. All right, and uh, it's uh, I guess it's your uh, Bill. It's your uh, it's your podcast. You invented it. I, I, yeah, I think I've passed the baton to you. You're you're the host. How's that? Oh, okay. Well, we're um, we're back well, for we're, uh, season we're back. four of Car Heard, which is uh, a meandering podcast. I think um, I think probably best to say it's about material culture and the lives of people who study material culture would that capture it um that's good because yeah, like we don't that. always just talk about material culture we talk about uh uh things that are happening in our lives but not in some weird creepy way about how's my toenail fungus doing it's fine by the way i was yeah. cleared up uh in between uh in our covid hiatus we really took care of that um but uh 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 and i, I would add with a special focus on the mediterranean 
and uh, America, right? Because there's whole sections of Asia, Africa that we, uh, right. you know, that we don't yeah. touch. I mean, we're uh, we're not yeah. we're not anywhere near as smart as we think we are, or as broad in our. Um, <laughs> knowledge uh we're broad for mediterranean archaeologists which means we right, sometimes we're, do three yeah. countries maybe four on a good day so yeah right it's all it's all it's all contextual so for mediterranean yeah. archaeologists we're insanely broad um but for the first uh episode of the of the new year we traditionally come together with uh costis and talk about the favorite books our favorite books we read last year and i think um uh in some previous seasons the episode has run like six or seven hours long um <laughs> so we've we've tried to limit it um and uh bill what was the genius selection criteria you came up with that I we may have we said, paid attention to yeah i think we said uh books that were one book that was recent one book that is that is sort of uh that, that comes from any time but but could be a classic and then one book that's uh, came from this year. Isn't that what I said? Uh, yeah, I think the one, uh, one, the classic was one book that might not be new, but is is new to us. New to us. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then right. and then yeah. recent, yeah. as in, you know, again, like historians and archaeologists think of recent, which is you know before present in some way, or not before exactly. present rather. Um, you know, sometimes yeah. since 1950, uh, recent. Let me. Hold on, I'm going to check something. And I'm going to completely uh, uh, yeah. disregard that Excellent. instruction because I just have a bunch. I just got buckets. I got, got bu buckets of books and they're still kind of floating. There's no one, two, three yet, but there's, you know, four buckets. Four buckets. Okay. We were, we were just glad you figured out what Riverside was. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Riverside. I guess Riverside is our, um, because we're, doing the demo version and not paying for our first hour there. They can be our sponsor today. Um, unless this doesn't work, then they're not our sponsor anymore. We don't do sponsors, but no, Unless everything gets sponsored by North Dakota quarterly or the digital press. We That's can just right. keep North laying those in so that our, uh, our permanent sponsors. Um, so, all right. So, uh, who wants to, uh, we do have a time limit today, which will help us tremendously. Um, so, uh, who's up first? I think you are Richard. You have to start. You're, you're I, the host. I, yeah. I, um, yeah, I had a tremendous reading year, um, courtesy of, uh, the virus, um, because to escape from reality, I went almost entirely fiction. I spent a lot of time reading fiction, um, which I don't normally do. But um, so I'm going to I do have one nonfiction. But um, and then since I'm still relatively new to Michigan, um, I also went fairly heavily Michigan themed. So I'm going to start with this one is hot off the press. The ink's still wet. Um, these bones, um, Kayla Chenote, who I have not met. I know someone who knows her, so that's really cool. Um, she describes herself as a practitioner of black girl magic. Um, and uh, Kayla, when she's not writing, Kayla is found at museums where she works um, or, is tell, or is telling everyone about the history of popular music and social dance. So... 
she's like nothing like me whatsoever. Um, <laughs> Although the museum thing sometimes. But the museum, yeah, I mean, there's an intersection. She's, uh, she's very much into history. Um, she uh, actually works at the uh, Detroit Historical Museum, which is a spectacular uh, museum. And this is how I learned about the book. I was actually in a meeting with someone at the museum and they mentioned it. And I'm like, well, wait, er, stop. So what's uh, that book? What's what the book's called? Them bones. Uh, these bones. These bones. Okay. Um, and it's, uh, it's. I mean, I guess historical fiction, magical realism, archival work. It does not fit into any category um, that. That uh, I mean, I, some smart literature person would say, "Oh no, that's that fits into this category, and, and these are the antecedents." But that's I'm I'm not that person. Uh, it's the Lyons family. They're in the Bramble Patch. Um, it's a fictional setting, but part of it is based on a version of Detroit history. It's not set in Detroit, but there's bits bits of it. There's an underworld kingpin, the Bargist, who runs a uh, a brothel in one part of town. There's an antecedent, uh, an opposite brothel run, a woman by a, a woman in another part of town. And it's, um, boy, she, uh, Kayla just drops you right into the middle of this thing. Um, it's wonderfully confusing. I had I struggled with it at first because it's not it's not linear. It's not unlinear, but it's not linear. Um, and if your your goal is to piece together the coherent story, why why are you reading magical realism? That's not what magical realism is for. Um, and it, and it traces how these lives intertwine as the white part of town and the black part of town intersect. Um, there's uh, murders, or are they magical realism? Um, there's uh, conflict between families, um, and there's uh, follows the lives of several individuals and families as as they go through this. And the Bargast is um, is is the monster um, who. Uh, tortures souls um, and engages in cannibalism. Is he doing it literally or is he doing it metaphorically? I have no idea. And because I finally figured out how to read the book, at least I, this is how I, it worked for me. By the end, I didn't care because that wasn't actually the part. I had to, the point, I had to let that go and just go with the flow. But <laughs> Kayla's done some wonderful things. There's, um, she'll drop out of the narrative suddenly and go into some, uh, there's historical photos. Um, I mean, they're obviously not historical photos from this place that doesn't exist, but they're historical photos from somewhere. I'm really proud that I didn't hunt them down and break the bubble. I just went with it. There's newspaper accounts of events. Um, there's, uh, um, some lynchings that are integral to the story. It's just wonderfully and beautifully and also horribly woven together. Um, it's, uh, it's in my top five books I'm th I keep thinking about that I, I read in the year, all from a passing comment and, you know, before we started a meeting, uh, I'm really glad I found it. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I, my, my uh, 
I've been kind of like you in that I've been reading mostly um, fiction. Uh, I mean, I've probably been reading a lot of nonfiction, but when I sat down and tried to think of the books that I read for the year, I had like almost no recollection of any nonfiction that I read, other than the kind of bits and pieces that I cited for, I'm sure. And, and then I was thinking, oh, well, I, I, I must have read that book this year. No, I read that in according to my blog, at least like 2019 or 2018, right? So I just, I, I, I lose, but the books that I read this year that were fiction seemed to like stick with me more and it may be for the same kind of um, escapist reasons. And and like you, I was reading, um, I read, uh, I think Costis, you got, you turned me on to uh, Renee Gladman, I think. And uh, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, these, yeah. Three, these three or four, I think oh, she has good. three little books now from the Dorothy Project at Washington University. Yeah, and uh, they're yeah. Uh, again, they're like magical, ma magical realism, but 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 heavy on the on the ma magical, right? I mean, to, but I, I've never read anything, um, or I've read very few things like them, in the sense that it's uh, that that the books um, they don't make any sense, really. Uh, I mean, they're they're almost pure pure poetry, right? They're they're um, completely ethereal. And, and if you try to make sense of them, it, it, the, the, the story it intentionally confounds you. Uh, you know, it, it's not, it, it doesn't go, and it, it also doesn't go anywhere. And to me, this was like completely refreshing, right? Uh, especially as our, our public discourse has been so driven by, you know, statistics and numbers and, and this kind of drumbeat of like, you know, trust the science and that these things are all, uh, all have this kind of like teleological or this, this sort of hyper-rational uh, kind of linearity to them. To read uh, Glasman's books against that backdrop was just like absolutely what I needed. Totally refreshing, totally, um, you know, and, and, and it, it, uh, it, they take place in this, this kind of ma magical place uh, that's really, I think, uh, th that's basic structure, right, is a dream. It's like the architecture of a dream. So so it, it loops on to itself. You, you suddenly find yourself in, you're in one place, but then you're in it, it, very much like a dream. You're in a totally different place. Um, and occasionally there's these like windows into sort of a sort of ra rationality. But but those are all so ephemeral, right? Like there's there's may, maybe some officials in these in the city. There may be some some philosophy that that under undergirds. There's this famous author at one point uh, that that they're kind of looking for, but then they stop looking for it, like you do in a dream when you're you know obsessed with finding something, and then you for some reason you're not, and then you're like you know walking up the stairs in your mother's house or you know in the luring annex or wherever you end up being right it, because it's your dream and it doesn't make any sense um and so i don't know uh along similar lines uh to, to what you're saying that 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 kind of that kind of literature uh i felt like i needed this year uh more than i probably needed needed uh in the past and whether that's because our world is increasingly taking on shades of magical realism or because we're constantly being told that our world isn't actually magical realism, that this all really, really makes sense. And we have to trust that it makes sense and just do what everyone says we should be doing. Uh, I'm not sure. Bill, I, if I can add, the one thing that I like about the uh, about Rene Gladman is that it's, <clears throat> it's not magical realism in, in that um, there are these uh, kind of willful associations to like, you know, um, you know, free willing stream of conscience kind of trajectories. There's, it seems like there's always some kind of really tightly confined system or 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 um, or, or game that 
uh, that is being followed. Like it's it's you know the the characters in search of something, and then uh, it's very. I've always I've, I liked it because it's very archaeological in a kind of a surveyor's point of view. So it's very analytical. So it's kind of in some way it's sort of the opposite in some way of the freewheeling. Um, magical realism and then it becomes a little claustrophobic sometimes but you're not really sure because the the walls are in there and kind of reminded me of the um of a, a kind of a school of the novel uh that everybody hates uh, uh but i used to like so much like the uh rob grier i think was the the main author like the new novel you know these novels in the french novels in the 50s where someone kind of spends like 60 pages describing the yeah. shadow across the table you know so yeah um I don't know if you get yeah, the same yeah. sense, but there's a, there's a kind of like a me me mechanistic um, framework. Right, and it's the tension between, like, I think, uh, the, the narrator's mechanistic perspectives, right? And, and, and the idea that the narrator, mm -hmm. it, like uh, the houses of Ravika, right? That the narrator has this job yeah. and this job is to like do this thing. And it's it, like, but the backdrop... Go yeah, survey yeah, a house. exactly. Yeah, survey because a house. the house may or may oh. not be two places at once, right? And... And and they're yeah. trying to resolve this problem with reality, but that that problem is it, so, so it's it's a rational character within this world that is um, that that is full of this magical realism, right? That 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 the world is this yeah. dreamscape, yeah. and it, and it, you know it's almost like yeah. uh, you know a weird Freudian interpretation of dreams, like attempting to like rationalize your dream because the the narrator always believes the world is rational, right? But the reader, like through their eyes, the the worlds aren't rational. I mean. Uh, uh, the event factory, right, where where the, the narrator goes out on on a walk every time, but the walk like they they think they're following the same path, but like the world around them changes, right? So they're kind of desperate to find the world that they live in, ah. um, or the characters in the hotel, and time seems to be like completely incapable or non-linear, even though the character lives in a world where there's an expectation of kind of linearity. So yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm not doing it justice. That's great. Or, uh... That's great. No, this is great. Yeah, I completely forgot about it. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm not going to talk about my favorite piece of fiction because I think I'm in an audience that doesn't like Jonathan Franzen, <laughs> but the new novel Crossroads just absolutely made my year. And um, the thing that I like about Jonathan Franzen is like reading a, uh, like a Dickens uh, novel, which is just so, there's so many pages to get to know a particular set of characters, but also the, um, um, he's not postmodern in, in, in a, he doesn't, there's a, there's a very kind of realistic uh, expectation, like, you know, like a 19th century novel where the wordsmithing of these descriptions are just like just incredible so you can just kind of keep on rereading a sentence over and over again so anyway so crossroads is the first of a of a trilogy i think that he's working on that um and i should preface i think all the books that i've collected have to deal with somehow with archaeology so i think what crossroads does is it manages to capture 1970s 1970s america in a way that um uh, that that is just very precise, and it's uh, uh, I mean essentially it's a, it's a story that involves um, a family of um, uh, uh, who's the, the the you know the head of the family is a, is is a um, uh, is a minister, um, and it's at the moment in American history where uh, uh, American religion is beginning to intersect with um, the civil rights movement, um, and there is this kind of this this youth groups that are very hippie and free willing that begin to take over the church organization. There's you know missionary trip trips um, to um, 
uh, you know, to the south that, you know, and that problematize everything. There's Vietnam. There's, it's just so loaded with, with whatever felt like the 1970s. And I feel like because of that sort of attention to detail and through this lens of that family, um, you experience the, 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 the phenomenally that moment in time. But I'm not going to talk about that's not on my list. That's the, what's <laughs> that's, not on my that's list. That's cheating. But I have to tell you, <laughs> I'm <you've>, cheating. <laughs> you've put me in you and your love of Jonathan Franzen have put me into like this Jonathan Franzen confirmation bias loop because every everywhere <laughs> yeah. I look, every magazine I open, every newspaper is like, oh, there he is. There's Jonathan. Yeah. I walk yeah. over to the yeah. student union to get a cup of coffee, and I'm like, <laughs> is that? Look at that guy in line. Is that him? Is that Jonathan Francis? I mean, he's been everywhere <laughs> yeah. since a few weeks ago. You you mentioned your love for him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's. I mean, and I might say like the corrections is probably still one of my, his first book. You know that got him. Um, you know, hated by everyone. You know, in that he said, you know, he's writing the greatest American novel, and then he actually did, and everyone just really pissed off that he pulled uh, it off. Uh, um, no, my next book is the greatest so if, American novel, but keep going. <laughs> Yeah, but if, if we we can make that count, but um, uh, in some loose way, if you if you'd like, um, maybe I'll shift into more actual material culture, if you will. So, um, so this is a um, so that so I think all the books that I've selected either have to do with some some, some uh, question of archiving, of uh, documenting, you know, material phenomenon, or dealing with. Um, certain kind of heritage, different kind of medium. So the the books that I'm that I've made, some of them are about sort of ethnic heritage. Some of them are about another category is about food. Another about is about legacy data from an archaeological project. And another one is on on um, on a piece of gum, which I think I won't even have to bring in. Kate, it's on Bill's yeah. top list. Um, but anyway, so the first book I would say is um, is about food. So this is a book called. Sweet Greeks, First Generation Immigrant Confectioners in the Heartland by Anne Flezer Beck. Now, this is the, uh, the dissertation, really, of a, um, of a Greek-American whose family owned one of these confectionaries in Tuscola, uh, Illinois. And sort of late in life, um, uh, Flezer Beck uh, went to get her PhD and started researching sort of her own, um, you know, the, the, the sort of long history of Greek immigrants getting into um, sweet shops. But I think that makes it really important is that her father owned one of those restaurants and it had like most of these um, kind of, you know, early 20th century institutions. It had become, um, it had been boarded up. It had been, uh, you know, uh, non-operational for like decades. Um, and really her sister and her decided that they're going to revive it. So it really is. So she got involved in this kind of restoration project of taking this abandoned building, which was her, you know, her um, her family heritage, and um, both restoring it and, and and making it work and making it actually extremely successful and kind of creating, you know, even kind of um, generating whole like you know hipster scene in the downtown of Tuscola, Illinois. Uh, but at the same time, writing a very scholarly book. Um, it's not, but you know, it's. It's not earth-shattering in any way, but I think it's that sort of combination of doing this um, uh, kind of scholarly work of, of uh, documenting all the Greek confectionaries from the 20s in the state of Illinois, you know, and, then, um, and then kind of interjecting those experiences, which, um, 
which are not even that visible in the book. Uh, it's it's through sort of other. I've uh, give a talk where you, where what's revealed is this other uh, project that um, she's partner to, but uh, her sister is the um, you know is the main uh, uh, co-director. Uh, anyway, so. But the this focus on food, I should say, is also, you know, over COVID, when we probably ate too much and cooked a lot, um, there's a couple of other things that are kind of relate to Greek food that I want to just simply note. Uh, one is a cookbook, which um, which I just love because everything I've cooked from it is amazing. It's by Yasmin Khan. It's called Ripe Figs. Uh, she's a, a, a British cookbook writer. She's her best known book is called Zaytun, where she looks at kind of Palestinian Jewish food. But in Ripe Figs, what she did is that she took this sort of journey through the itinerary of the of refugees and migrants. So she went through uh, Greece and Turkey and uh, and really it's almost a memoir, um, but mostly mm. a cookbook. Um, so uh, so it's it. You know, every single thing I've made is just absolutely simple and delicious. Um, and on the on the flip side of the United States, I think another really great book on the sort of topic of food history and, and institutions and restaurants is a, is a book that I, um, to be honest, I read very quickly, but I uh, absolutely love the premise of it. You might have heard of this um, uh, this book on the, it's called uh, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America by Marcia mm -hmm. Chatelaine. And this is a book that basically argues that um, in the history of the African-American community in the 50s and 60s, uh, McDonald's or the franchise was uh, was a uh, really kind of a golden opportunity to create small business, uh, to create, you know, uh, uh, hmm. black businesses. So that these, whereas we might look down on McDonald's as a, as a, as a you know, corporate infrastructure, if you do kind of micro history, you realize that the you know, those uh, because of the, of the opportunity to franchise and own your um, your own property. Uh, there was a kind of a um, a, a great thrust of, uh, of black businesses, and then she ultimately explains down the line. This is why kind of uh, this sort of this African American deep seated uh, appreciation and 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 um, commitment to McDonald's as a brand, because uh, it really was used in a kind of almost like a, a, a corporate civil hmm. rights movement. Um, so anyway, so basically, there's you know, right figs, a cookbook, the um, uh, the Golden Arch franchise, um, and then this little history of Greek American confectionaries really kind of kept me busy in both cooking and thinking about food and the spaces in which we eat the food at a time where we couldn't really go anywhere. And so, yeah, so one book with three others nice. behind it. <laughs> Four. <laughs> oh, one thing I should also say is that what you learn from from Sweet Greeks is that there's actually this other book <laughs> called Rigby's Reliable Candy Teacher, which is a uh, uh, which is basically a guidebook that was published by Rigby in the um, 1900s to teach you how to start a uh, uh, like a an ice cream shop or a confectionery. And as it turns out, like basically Greeks that knew nothing about sugar or sweets just basically picked up this book and um, and and just follow it down to um, to the detail. It, at the end, it actually even has uh, instructions on how to set up your shop. And um, Flesnor, in fact, used this book to reconstruct the recipes in her, um, ah, you know, in her kind of so reconstructed cool. shop. Um, nice. But also used the original edition that her grandfather had with notes and, and changes of how to roll, roll out the candy. 
so of course I couldn't resist to go on eBay and get myself a copy now, uh, of, since, of, of it. And since you were blatantly and obviously cheating on the premise, <laughs> your uh, your penance is you have to uh, send me a list of these books so I don't have to Absolutely, listen all yeah. the way through the podcast yep. again to get the list because I could remember <laughs> yeah. three books. I can't remember the fifteen we're going to get to by the end with six, you. <laughs> yeah, six books disguising under one. <laughs> Okay, I'll go with my next one, which is also fiction. Um, this is not new. It's new to me. I guess it was new to lots of people. Um, it's uh, Hard Rain Falling, Don Carpenter. Um, it's 1964, um, so the year I was born. It's been reissued by the New York Review of Books. Um, uh, you know, I saw the ad. It said it was noir. So I'm like, okay, whatever. I'll give it a try. <laughs> um, New York Review of Books, their collection. I mean, sometimes you get them and it's like, man, that was stodgy. There's a reason that went out of print and you're having to reprint <laughs> it. This thing, holy cow. It's a, it was a, it was a ride. There's a, Jack, the uh, orphaned white kid who's uh, roaming through cities, grifting and and uh, trying to uh, be a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, you're you're a card shark. Are you also a pool shark? This was an early read in the year. I've lost some of my. Uh, 19, uh, uh, my, uh, 1960s vocabulary, but you know, he's trying to scam people in pool halls and getting in fights and making trouble. He hooks up with Billy, a, um, a black teenager also roaming the cities and they intersect and it's very dark and it's very noir and they have all kinds of awful misadventures intersecting with police and crime and racists and an endless string of uh, women, uh, some buried, some not. Um, it's, it's a dark, horrible mess. Um, and then their lives disintersect and there's success for one of them and there's I don't want to give the plot away because people should live this but um, buried within it is uh, our interracial love stories there's a gay love story there's a heroic murder if that's a thing um, it, 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 there's no way there is no way in the world anyone would publish this if it was coming out as a new book today, not just the language, which you couldn't publish anymore, um, but uh, the the themes and the bluntness and just the brazenness which Carpenter um, goes at these. And uh, Carpenter was um, an academic. Um, this is one of those uh, books where it always, to me, it feels like sort of the finger of God is transitioning through a person to write this. There's no uh, apparent reason why Don Carpenter would have this book within him. It was his first book. Um, and it's, uh, it's an, it's it's a nearly perfect book. Hmm. It's not overdone. It's hmm. not underdone. It is it is truly amazing. And I um I uh um uh, after I finished reading it, I was like, oh my god, this book is 
this is amazing. Someone, someone has to know about this. So I, uh, I messaged uh, Jamie Ford, the author of uh, Hotel in the Corner of Bitter and Sweet, you know, New York Times bestseller, about to become a major Broadway musical, motion picture author. He came to uh, uh, CMU here and gave a talk. And, you know, we chat online a little bit. I'm not saying he's my best friend, but we're in touch. I, I said to him, I said, you know, I don't know if you have the time, but I think this book is amazing. And then for months I was thinking, man, it's probably terrible. And he thinks I'm an idiot because I recommended this book. And he's like, wow, that guy doesn't know nothing. Um, and then I just noticed on Twitter a few weeks ago, he was recommending this book to some folks. So, uh, you know, there, it's, nice, it's nice to have confirmation that either yeah. um, we have equally bad taste or that someone else <laughs> saw something amazing in this book also. <laughs> ah, my reading list is getting longer as this conversation goes on. <laughs> so, so the next book on my list is the first book. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't read it. I listened to it as an audiobook uh, because I had to drive from Fort Myers, Florida to Grand Forks. And it's about a 30 hour, um, about a 30 hour drive. And uh, the, the podcast was something like 27 hours or the, the, the recorded book was something like 27 hours. I mean, I, rem I we were, I was on, I was between Fargo and Grand Forks on 29 when the, the last pages were, were done. Uh, you know, so, so I made it, but I read, um, well, listen to, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's ministry for the future, his new book. And, uh, I, I picked it solely because, well, I mean, I like his stuff. We've talked about his stuff on, on care heard podcast now, whatever, eight years ago. Um, but, uh, I, I was I picked it almost solely because it was long enough to take up the entire uh, to take up the entire trip, but it was actually pretty fantastic. Right, right. Um, it was actually like a, a a pretty a pretty fantastic book, and it's one that that's you know there's um, I like John Dos Passos, and uh, it's been compared to that right this this kind of mm -hmm. uh, multi. Vocality, you know, use of, of multivocality, everything from, I mean, literally in, in the, the, the audio book, but also uh, short chapters. Each chapter is, is a different genre, um, you know, things that are sometimes pure narrative, things that are this weird interviewing style, uh, things that are uh, uh, news, news releases, uh, the characters kind of flicker on and off. Uh, sometimes a char there are a couple characters that, that stay with the book uh, the entire way through and other characters that appear just for a couple episodes and, and they just kind of, you know, that's it. They, they disappear in, into the ether. Um, and it's his book, it's his uh, uh, near future climate change kind of apocalypticism. And uh, it, 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 it got me thinking, um, the thing that that, stru that struck me that I, I don't want this to be like damning by f with with damning by faint praise or something, but I remember sitting on a panel at one of our academic meetings uh, on on writing for a public audience about archaeology, I think, and everyone was sitting up in the front of the room, uh, and it was a bunch of authors who had done this successfully, academic authors who had done this successfully, and you know they're fine, their books are fine, um, they're they're successful, like they will in the end sell more than everything I write combined entirely, uh, one of their you know one of their books probably has, and um, they all were preaching the, the the virtue of writing in this kind of journalistic mode, right? That that, that accessibility for them was all about writing like a journalist, and. Um, 
and then they all at one point sort of joked about creative nonfiction, creative nonfiction being this kind of weird, weird esoteric space, this kind of dead end, this thing that that isn't doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Right. It's neither creative nor nonfiction or something. And then they went on to describe once again in this kind of like. I don't know, this sort of journalistic, linear way, how they want to talk about, you know, whatever, Bronze Age collapse or whatever their whatever their topics were. And, uh, I, you know, I've read their books because they're, they're people in my field. They give keynotes at my conferences. I appreciate their efforts to popularize and expand the audience for, for what we do. But I kept thinking that, like, Kim Stanley Robinson's book, which was not any great literary masterpiece in terms of his writing, um, was probably a, it was an infinitely more compelling read, and not just for its narration, but forcing me, uh, while I was driving my humongous diesel truck that was into a headwind, getting something like you know seven miles to a gallon at one point, <laughs> to confront like the horrors of climate change, uh, and thinking that like man, this idea that that. All of these plaintiff articles that, I mean, I think CNN just has them just scrolled. I mean, they, they probably have them written for the next 20 years. And just every Thursday they put out like the next climate change article. You know, it's sea turtles, it's quokkas, it's kangaroos, it's polar bears, it's squirrels, whatever animal is being, you know, not to trivialize it. But I mean, you just read this stuff, you become right. desensitized. But reading Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, work for all of its limitations in terms of the work of literature or literary style or anything like that, like created this incredibly uh, indelible uh, uh, sense of urgency in my head about something that really, you know, like I hadn't, I mean, I have, I have a list of things that I get agitated and urgent about and they usually revolve very tightly around me. Um, and this is, you know, one of the few thing t times where I actually thought probably for a good, you know, whatever, six months, like, hmm, you know, this, this is probably something that matters more in the world than, um, so anyway, it, it, uh, it's rare that a book kind of catches me like that, uh, particularly a big picture book, like a big issue book. Um, I often find they kind of fall a little flat. Like, you know, I think, I think the, um, dawn of everything is great. Right. But it, it's not causing me to you know, you know, create an anarchistic, you know, anarchist commune in rural Grand Forks County or something. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a fine book, but but this book actually did uh, really really caused me to to stop and think not only about how I lived, but more importantly uh, how we how we what we need to write like to capture the attention of people in um, in a world where the same narratives are being trotted out for every crisis, where you just swap out, oh, it's not climate change now, it's COVID for a while. So we're gonna write the same CNN story, but we're gonna talk about COVID, or we're gonna talk about Bronze Age collapse, or we're gonna talk about, uh, you, you know, whatever, whatever the next uh, crisis du jour is, so. It's a uh, great, great graberization. Is that a word? We've we've graberized it. Yeah, I mean Graber's great. <laughs> I mean Graber wrote. Yeah, but even Graber, in some ways, yeah, yeah. I mean Graber had some creativity. I mean Graber's stuff could be pretty creative and pretty interesting. Um, but this is goes beyond that, even right? I mean, yeah, I'm not a. I know I'm an outlier, and I'm sure that's. A deficiency in me. I'm ready to embrace and admit that, but I'm just, I'm just not a fan. Um, I, I, I sure I probably just can't. He's too smart for me or something, but I'm just not a fan. I, you guys go for it. I don't, I support you fully, but I'm not part of that club. 
First Franzen, now Graber. Jeez. I know. I know. Maybe it's a maybe it's a letter cluster thing. We'll have to think about that. All right, Christis, what's your next uh, one or five books? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I. Um, so maybe I should preface the next three books that are on the normal list by saying that they've all been weirdly selected. They've all, all three of them, number, uh, number two, number three, number four, um, they're all um, from projects that somehow failed or were interrupted by COVID or just simply didn't materialize. So these publications are in some way are the, um, you know, the, 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 the rethinking of something that never happened. But in, in you know, so in sequence, right? So the first one is um, Warren Ellis's Nina Simone's Gum. And Warren Ellis is not a writer, an archaeologist, or but he's a musician, and he plays for um, Nick Cave and the Bat Seeds, one of the you know greatest sort of post-punk heroes. Uh, and in fact, Nick Cave was scheduled to have an exhibition um, that would be all his diaries, his crazy drawings, you know, his translations of the Gospels. Um, and I believe that that exhibition never quite opened, or because of COVID. Um, but what Warren Ellis contributed uh, in this project was uh, thinking through a piece of gum that he picked up from uh, the underneath of a, of a piano in a performance by Nina Simone. So the whole book is a, a reflection with various sort of points of connection um, about this object that is um, almost like a, a testimony to one of his heroes that he had an opportunity to kind of intersect with. And um, so if that one is about an exhibition that never happened and a piece of gum that becomes the centerpiece of a book, <laughs> um, the next one is also about an exhibition that never happened. So the next book is called Sephardic Trajectories, Archives, Objects, and the Ottoman Jewish Past in the United States. Um, it's a collection of essays uh, edited by Kerem Tinaz and Oscar Aguirre Mandujano. So the reason why I'm sort of, uh, you know, thinking about the Sephardic heritage is that as, um, you know, as, as, as many, uh, as you know well, the majority of the Jewish population in the Eastern Mediterranean was displaced uh, from, um, from Spain, um, to, uh, you know, uh, um, so in, in some way the the Jewish community in the Eastern Mediterranean, places like Salonika and you know Rhodes, um, um, has its own sort of you know you know special history. Now, this work is about the diaspora of that Sephardic community in the United States, and there's a huge community that evolved or developed in uh, uh, in Seattle, Washington. So the project was, um, I think one, I think uh, I think Tina, um, you know, uh, Tina's is a professor at Koch University. Um, so the project originated in having an exhibition of artifacts and archival stuff that has been collected by this diaspora in, in Seattle um, to curate an exhibition that goes back to Koch University, to, to Turkey, um, and sort of completes the story and discusses this kind of like, you know, complicated like Ottoman diaspora. And for obvious reasons that proved to be just way too naive, you know, and I think in, through the project, the, the contributors realized, you know, wait a minute there's actually some really complicated uh, issues about, um, you know, what happens if the objects get stuck? You know, then we have all of a sudden erased uh, these histories. Um, 
So this stands at the front of some really incredible work on Ottoman history that's coming out in the last couple of years. I mean, these young scholars that are, um, I've, they've been, they, they, they have kind of the main positions in Islamic history in, um, in, you know, throughout the United States. Um, one of these books sort of behind this kind of Sephardic thinking is a, is a, a book called Forging Ties, Forging Passports, Migration in the Modern Sephardi Diaspora by Davey Mays, um, who teaches at the University of Michigan. And then another book called Jewish Salonica Between the Ottoman Empire and Modern Greece by Devin Nahr, who's a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle and is one of the main contributors to the Sephardic Trajectories book. So I've been reading a lot about this sort of Sephardic diaspora in the United States. It's so fascinating because it completely defies any of the binary um, kind of, you know, uh, uh, migration and, and trauma stories that we have. So particularly in an era of sort of social justice and framing things, uh, you know, uh, around, uh, you know, race and ethnicity, the, the complexity of the different kind of roles of, in, you know, interchangeability of this diaspora community are fascinating. Um, for example, that when they first arrived in the United States, they, had, they, they identified as Turkish, as, as Turkani. Uh, but then after the First World War, they realized they have this sort of Spanish, because of the linguistic connections, they could actually be more Spanish. So there was a kind of fluidity in how they defined themselves and how they associated um, in, in um, but also in a very important way, how they recreated in cities like New York City or Seattle or, um, you know, or Chicago, they recreated the Ottoman Empire because it was the only place in the world in Chicago in the 1920s where you could be hanging out, you know, drinking, sipping coffee with Greeks and Syrians and Lebanese and Jews, right, in a way that wasn't possible back home after the kind of um, uh, the nationalization of things. So that's my, uh, and forgive me, I'm going through my whole list now because I think, because I have to leave around five, <laughs> right? So, so the Sephardic trajectories is my uh, number three. And my number four is um, this book that I know you guys have heard of. It's produced by the American School of Classical Studies. That and you're like, what? But it's a book called Vrisaki, A Neighborhood Lost in Search of the Athenian Agora. It's a book by Sylvie Dumont, who happens to be the, um, um, the cataloger or the, you know, the, um, the, the object uh, curator of the Agora, like, you know, very, very sort of uh, seemingly boring and um, non, um, uh, you, know, she's, uh, you know, she's not the director of the excavation, she's not. But over the years, she has reconstructed the entire neighborhood that the American archaeologists destroyed in the 1930s through the photographic archive. So just like the Nick Cave exhibition that never happened, the, the Sephardic exhibition in, uh, in Turkey that never happened, Risaki is about the neighborhood that doesn't exist, but has, but it, you know, but has been reconstructed through, um, through, the, uh, through the photographs and, and drawings of the very same people that destroyed it. Um, and it's not particularly creative in the sense that you can't, like unless you have an, already an interest in Greece, an interest in photography, an interest in archaeology, you probably won't get very much out of it because it really is a kind of a, uh, like a really fundamental reference book. But over the course of the last year, I've just finding myself just kind of opening it up and, and sort of time traveling through these photographs and understanding, um, you know, and it's, and it's divided in different sections. Like there's a whole section on, um, um, you know, speaking of refugees, uh, the evidence of these refugee shanty towns in 
in Athens, right, in the excavation site, but because the archaeologists, the American archaeologists were so obsessed with documentation, they actually captured in great resolution, uh, and, and I think now one can even, you know, go through and reconstruct, like, you know, how many pieces of, of plywood uh, th did it take for a, uh, you know, for for someone who was essentially homeless to create a house in the middle of Athens in like, you know, 1926. And, and we, can, we can do it through these photographs uh, or about, you know, public squares and about streets and about property. Um, it stays away from all the big questions that people like Hamilakis and others have raised about colonialism, imperialism and destruction of, um, um, of, 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 of entire, you know, urban landscapes and, and kind of slum clearings, you know, practiced by the Americans. Um, but what it reveals is that, you know, whatever that other conversation is about, you know, ideology and politics and um, we have in, you know, what we have in our hands is a record and then, and then a published record of the only neighborhood in Athens from the 1920s because this neighborhood would have eventually been destroyed by 1960s renewal, right? Except that no one would have photographed it. So as we may critique the imperialists that destroyed the neighborhood, they're the ones that have given us the only possibility of actually seeing that period of Greek history because no one else ever bothered to, uh, to record it. So that's probably, that's my entire <laughs> list, but they're all sort of little bits and pieces that kept me thinking about collections and, um, um, and also all of these projects were not like grand visions of anything, but things that you could kind of pick up and, and go back in and get lost uh, again and sort of think about that um, the world that you can't access, like you can't go to Greece because you know, right. of COVID or you can't go to a restaurant, you know, because of COVID or um, there are these other projects that have to be interrupted because of the international. Um, so I think, it, forgive me how they're all kind of Eastern Mediterranean ethnic studies diaspora, but it's, um, well, it seems like that's the kind of thing that, um, that I've, I've been trying to untangle. Nina, Nina Simone's gone. Gum is it? Eastern Mediterranean. I had a very actually it is it is there is one yeah, comp there's yeah. a, there's a, a a new wave yeah. 1960s yeah. Greek musician named Arletta. Oh, that's right. That enters into the that crazily I've enters seen, into the narrative. I've, I'm yeah. vague, I haven't read it yet. <laughs> so, actually, I had a very close call with Nina Simone just yeah. last night because a whole bunch of Amazon boxes <laughs> arrived and. <laughs> As happens, you guys know, I opened the first one. Is, <laughs> is that a book? Yeah, it's a book. Um, so you can get away with that. And then I opened the second yeah. one. Oh, is that also a book? Um, yeah, it's a book. It was Mark Mazower, Inside Hitler's Greece. And oh, it turns out I already owned <laughs> oh, yeah. Inside Hitler's Greece. I'm usually <laughs> impeccably, wonderfully good about not duplicating. But um, the only way I find uh, books is by ordering them. Like the right. books that I well, have on my shelf, like my shelves behind me, they're not organized <laughs> in any way. So the only way I can find a book on that shelf is I have to go to Amazon and order it. Yeah. And then that shirt, it it'll make it appear. <laughs> and if I'm lucky, I can cancel my Amazon order in time. It's uh, my method well, now. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, yeah. <laughs> the hardback copy of Inside Hitler's Grease was uh, appeared 
instantaneously because Paige had read it, but I had not. So she knew where it was on the shelf. And I was like, yeah, I know who this is a perfect gift for. And then I get to a third box and the question is, is that a book also? And I'm like, uh, no, it's, it's gone. Um, which, uh, no, no, it, it didn't work. So, um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, I think maybe the Nina Simone thing is also framed by the, you know, the, um, the summer of soul, um, yeah, uh, yeah. That, I haven't seen it yet, but it's on my list. Oh, it's so good. I've watched it um, at oh, least yeah, two yeah. and a half times. There's also a Nina Simone documentary, um, which, as yeah. happens, you don't want to get to know your heroes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I after reading, I should say that after reading um, Nina Simone's Gum, I went and read and got her autobiography uh, for the purpose of doing my own version of the gum, which is basically to try to get as much uh, primary source information about the times that she spent in Philadelphia to actually go to try to figure out exactly where, at what corner on 52nd Street did she open her music shop, right? Uh, where did she go for, you know, to do, um, to do her, um, you know, her examination at the, um, um, you know, at the, at the, at the music school. Yeah. Anyway, so I had the ambitions to, to turn my own, like, uh, kind of create my gum out of nothing, yeah. which, uh, yes. yeah, which, but partly because, yeah, she's so central, I think also with the summer of love and, and thinking, wow, she's really complicated. And, and you're right, like she, you know, her relationship with African leaders and, you know, just, just a crazy, crazy but all these figures figure. are like that. I mean, uh, not to, not to trivial, I mean, but like, yeah, yeah. I, I, not, not to jump the queue, but like I was, I, I've read, I was reading, um, Black Fire, the, 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 Amiri Baraka uh, anthology, right? And because yeah. I was, I have this weird obsession with Sun Ra, and like these these guys, Amiri Baraka's. I mean, uh, this is saying the obvious, but is like not a simple figure, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, if Nina Simone <laughs> right. is not a simple figure, like he is simply he's not a simple figure, and Miles Davis isn't a simple like none of these characters are simple figures. It, maybe it's kind of what makes it um, so compelling, and uh, why a guy like Malcolm X or even Sun Ra. Uh, have, have have a capacity to resonate with a society that is um, with, with with a society that is that is in some ways turned Martin Luther King into kind of a, um, a, a not, not a caricature, but has simplified him so much that he, he, he can no longer represent the plurality of its experiences and priorities and um, motives and methods present in you know, particularly among black activists today, um, that, 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 not, yeah, that, that yeah. his, that, that he, he's become so simplified in that way. Whereas Nina Simone, right. Is like, like I, I, some of her stuff is every bit as powerful as, as, as things that, that, you know, whatever Martin Luther King day, we see, uh, endlessly on social media, like, yeah. Right. I think the, and I've forgotten if it's, Amazon, Hulu, whatever, but the the film brings that out really, um, really clearly how incredibly yeah. powerful and filled with anger she was, and how how much she wanted to turn her life in that direction, which you know I was vaguely aware of, but you know why would I? I just didn't know that it was part of my world, so um, it does a great job of that. But of course, it's, you know, it's much easier to live in my 
comfy little box than to be faced with, oh, this is music. Oh, it's nice uh, than to be faced with that reality. But yeah, she's extremely complex. Um, I mean, for me, like, uh, you know, it's, and, and, you know, maybe Bill is sort of exploring this too. It's like, I do, I mean, I've always loved Nina Simone's music, right? And I just played it forever, but I never really, because it's music and exists in this sort of world, like, I, I didn't think, why, like, why would I need to read her biography? Like, it's, you know, it's the music that matters, right? Why do, why do I need to, thinking about the gum or, um, you know, so I think, but I think it's, it's kind of flipping it in a way that, it, it, it may or may not have anything to do with the appreciation of the music and the work of, of you know, of, of the Right, of it, make, the it, makes, it makes the like, music take on. Um, I, I kept thinking of, uh, of, of Ellis's, of Nina Simone's gum as having a, a kind of, taking Simone's music and, make, and, and, and lending a kind of scriptural quality to it, where... Uh, where, where the gum becomes yeah. then this relic. And of course, like I went and listened to the, the, yeah. the pretty mediocre, <laughs> yeah. to be honest, album of her singing like uh, kind of pop standards, right? Um, that that was obviously yeah. like released at around the time. It must have been that this concert that, that, that Ellis goes to uh, was in and support was, of that. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> like I, I like Nina Simone. I, I like High Priestess of Soul. I like her early stuff. Like this is not the Nina Simone that I find, you know, especially compelling. Okay, fine. Like, uh, but yeah. it kind of converts this album to kind of it, it gives this like I, I'm similarly ambivalent about Second Corinthians, right? Like, it's it's not the best letters <laughs> to the Corinthians. Let's just put it out there, right? Like, it's just not. It's not First Corinthians. Let's just say it. Um, but it has a canonical quality to it, and, and maybe I need to go back and think. You know, after all, like I don't think Coltrane was like super excited about recording my favorite things. Like this wasn't something that he was like, like no, this all right, fine, I'll do it because may maybe this will sell some albums, right? So like all of these guys, then then then, but that's canonical now, right? And so maybe Nina Simone's gum is the relic from this new canon that that uh, that that this um, Saint Saint Warren Ellis has brought to our attention. Um, I've assigned yeah. it to my grad yeah. uh, class on things uh, this semester uh, toward the end. Uh -huh. Oh, good. Yeah, that's how it ended up on my reading list, because I, I was aware of yeah. it and I was going to skip it. But then it was on Bill's syllabus. And I'm like, oh, that must be a sign. <laughs> OK, I'll read it. <laughs> I got in such a little rabbit hole that I was going to start. You're trying to find the some of the LPs starting with, and I think I was okay. I was like I'm just the beginning, so I, you know, I thought I was gonna. I, I never really quite did that, but you know, Little Girl Blue, you know, yeah. 1958, and I was looking at the cover. She's sitting at Central Park. I was like, all right, I can go to Central Park, find perhaps that bench. And then all of a sudden, I noticed that there is a, like a little piece of debris at the bottom of her, um, at, you know, at the base of of the bench that looks like a discarded. The coffee cup and i thought okay so you know is it is it possible to even return to that location and then as it turns out no because there's no relic of that bench anymore uh, i mean there's a view of that iconic uh you know bridge in the distance but but there's really nothing left i mean the same thing with philadelphia like there's really nothing left of nina simone at central park in philadelphia right there's really nothing it's a and we noticed that richard in the um at their rock and roll museum right hall of fame like it's like how could we how could something so important as popular music do such a horrible job in um in taking care of its material culture of its past right even something that's just you know 10 20 years old like it's it's never been it's not serious enough to ever be thought uh, thought through or is so generic that you know why why 
bother unless you're gonna heroize, you know, that one electric guitar or that. So, so can I that. can I talk yeah. just because about everything has to come to this about Sun Please, yeah. in this context? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, we have to. I mean, we can. We can catch my third book some other <laughs> podcast. You can wrap us up. All right, all right. One of the great things that I purchased uh, this this uh, and I read uh, um, this uh, summer. So, so I, I, this this ties into what what Kostis was talking about, and, and, and it, uh, this this uh, gallery in Chicago called Corbett versus Dempsey um, re-released a bunch of Sun Ra's. Um, books basically so Sun Ra is this you know for listeners who may not know this avant-garde jazz musician uh, who was uh, very possessive of his own intellectual property in, in the sense it, at a time where this was not always the case right like he owned his uh, vast majority of his catalog he owned a uh, vast majority of his literary output he he owned um, and he self-published in most cases now we can speculate on why this was uh, and it wasn't entirely racial and it wasn't entirely uh, his kind of desire to be autonomous and independent it was maybe some of his stuff isn't really all that great but uh because he did this on his own they were primarily sold at his concerts right and these things circulated to people who would come and hear the orchestra play um and corbett versus dempsey found copies of it and reproduced it in its like original forms i no one can see this uh to the point where where some of them uh that, that were mimeographed they reproduced using kind of kind of facsimile mimeographing the purple ink of being mimeographed, and it's in just loose pages, right? It just it just comes apart. It's loose pages, and and it really creates. Um, so all of those poems have have been published in a big big kind of complete celestial, you know, the complete uh, what is it, the terrestrial works of Sun Ra, uh, and and you know pr- uh, by a German scholar and put together in similar fonts and alphabetized for some weird reason, uh, which you know, that's how I like to to engage my authors alphabetically. Anyway, uh, but, but getting back to, to reading uh, the things in these reproductions, right? But but have this this kind of type of authenticity to them because this is actually how they were released and how they were originally done. Um, let me uh, give me a far greater appreciation of what Sun Ra uh, was trying to do, right? Uh, and again, this probably bleeds into to magical realism. It bleeds into um, narratives on, on on race and on. Um, political autonomy uh, that that don't conform to kind of our neat uh, spaces like carved out for social activism today. Uh, Sun Ra was a complicated figure who intersected with um, you know, with with uh, the Black Arts Movement in in in, in New York. He intersected with. Um, Groups like the Nation of Islam in, during his time in Chicago, uh, he intersected then in Philadelphia with like all sorts of different communities uh, where he ran uh, effectively, um, you know, almost like a mutual benefit community, like almost like an anarchist commu- community in, in uh, where it, what, not West Philly. Uh, where, where is it? Uh, Germantown, yeah, yeah that's Germantown. right. Yeah. Germantown, uh, that's still yeah. kind of functioning today, right? And so uh, that that he he yeah. positions himself in all these uh, str- strange. There's all these strange juxtapositions to his work that he that that uh, in no way kind of uh, characterize him, right? Like in no way are are the hands of the Black Arts Movement or what's going on in six, uh, late '50s Chicago or even any sort of Philadelphiaism to it too strongly like a hand on his. Mm. Uh, bizarre individuality um so anyway it makes me uh, excited to to see uh ra making this kind of um re-emergence uh especially as people are thinking more seriously about afrofuturism and things like that uh and and, and locating him within this context of 
of, of, of alternative ways of thinking about uh, the kind of contempt contemporary crises, right? Uh, whether these are the crisis of race, whether it's a crisis of economic inequality, whether it's a crisis of COVID, whether it's a crisis of, 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 you know, even climate change. I mean, Sun Ra was, you know, interested in this stuff. Uh, he didn't have solutions that always made sense. But I don't think the current <laughs> series of solutions are particularly great either. <laughs> so, like, why not? Why right. not read all of Sun Ra right. while listening to his 7,000 yeah. albums? Uh, like, can't driving around in my diesel truck. I don't know. Like, it can't. But, but Sun Ra was not obsessed with... Uh, Costis has to go. He has to go do, I don't know, some city guy thing. I don't know what they do. But I have to take, yeah, take... Take a thirteen-year-old or orthodontist. Oh, yeah. There you go. Well, we all have to do that, um, or we versions that. thereof. So, all right. Yeah. Thank you, Costis. Ed will. We can maybe. We'll wrap yeah. it up. Yeah, I was just going to say, Kosan um, Ra is. Uh, he was smart enough to not be trapped into thinking his solutions had to be consistent and make sense. So yeah, no, I, I mean, I think uh, there's certain there's certain uh, truth to that, right? He didn't get he he, yeah. he I mean, in in some ways, he was a product of his own. Although I guess could argue that he was such a product of his own rhetoric that once you decide not to make sense, that becomes the or, or or not to conform, that becomes the the kind of most viable way forward, right? Like there's there's right. no coming back from from being Sun Ra, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, I was being a little facetious or reading what I wanted to read into said Rob. But, but it's a wonderful juxtaposition of what you said earlier about the uh, balancing out the trust in the science, which has become trust in the in the science of the well, I haven't looked at the um, my, you know, select your favorite liberal media update of the afternoon um but you know whatever what's the science of the last 15 minutes right. of sun ra sun ra was, does not play that no, game no. the oh, cdc has not yet uh, recommended sun ra <laughs> yet god that would be that would be the greatest album of 2022, CDC recommends Sun Ra. Well, the orchestra is still making music. Uh, you know, Marshall Allen, and uh, I'm sure they would they'd be up for it. So wait, you have to tell us your, your final book. You have to tell me your final book. Oh, okay, I'll go. Um, it's a nonfiction. It is uh, Rachel Marie Crane Williams' Run Home If You Don't Want to Be Killed, The Detroit uh, Uprising of 1943. Um uh, Run Home If You Don't Want to Be Killed is a quote um, of one of the uh, witnesses, participants, victims of the uprising in 1943. Um, it was following on my Detroit theme. It's a graphic novel. Oh, wow. Um, uh, it's very cool. Uh, Rachel Marie Crane is Williams is at the... Ooh, I can't get this right because uh, wrong because I now know her uh, University of Iowa. I had to get the right Iowa University because you know how universities yeah. are touchy about that. University of Iowa. Um, and she, um, of course, 1943, um, it pivots off of 
uh, tensions in the city of Detroit, and also some issues about employment for black and African-American workers. Uh, the uh, Prez has said that uh, um, everyone should be involved in the defense industry and everyone should be paid the same and treated equally. And that's not quite happening that way in the factories of um, Detroit, but, you know, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, where any anywhere in the uh, industrial Midwest tensions rise. There's an uprising in 43. It's uh, it's quite violent. There's uh, I mean, it's 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 the continuity that we are. We, we know so well. But what Rachel did is she went into the archival sources. The um, NAACP sent out um interviewers and within those interviews um they spoke to a lot of the women in the community um so of course this is 43 has been studied a lot but what had not been studied are what are the stories the women in the community were telling so she went into those stories and she's an artist she's not a historian but grabbed compelling stories from the women and words and images as she conceived them from the stories that were in there and what she knew of Detroit and the other histories and combined it all together into a really very cool um, graphic novel. Um, you know, it's not really a linear plot. It's snapshots. I mean, it's cause it's, it's an uprising. It's a riot. What do you get? You don't get a linear story. You get snapshots, but there's all kinds of really cool things in there. I learned about double V for victory, um, victory at home, victory abroad, mm -hmm. um, which was, uh, emphasizing that, uh, we expect people to fight, um, in the in the in the uh, field in the trenches, um, we also need to have victory for civil rights at home. Um, I was so impressed by it. I uh, um, uh, sent Rachel an email and said, "Hey, I'm at Central Michigan University, and we are always trying to do cool outreach projects in Detroit. Let's do something." And that's grown into I'm you know I'm just. Uh, Simple country dean, or now a simple country interim provost. So I, I'm not a big player in this, but uh, she's now linked up with uh, our Detroit uh, office and uh, the Detroit History Museum and Inside Out Literary Arts Program. And they're going to be working with high school students wow. focused on uprisings. And there's going to be poetry and an art project. Um, so... That's pretty good impact from a uh, couple be being distracted and bored and needing a book to so read. So do you think Detroit, so. I, I'm trying to figure, so a couple of the, um, I, I, I follow some uh, British record labels and uh, they've become uh, fascinated. I mean, this is 25 years, 30 years later, right? By some of these um, Detroit uh, record labels, particularly Strata uh, or the Strata Corporation. Um, which uh, put out, I don't know, loosely, I think we might call it today like soul jazz. It's a uh, late 60s, early 70s, um, very, very uh, urban jazz. Jazz that was for a very particular audience who had clear expectations what they, and they, they put out some really brilliant albums that are very much Detroit albums. And uh, 
there are a couple other uh, Detroit labels that have recently um, similarly similar dates that have also seen um, their stuff being re-released. I happen to have sitting right next to me uh, uh, Krista Rizuski's uh, Detroit Remains. Yeah, and I'm beginning to wonder if uh, the the kind of without getting apocalyptic or overly dramatic, if the current national mood is such where Detroit has gone from being a kind of uh, I don't want to call it a, a well, I mean, this is probably too strong, but like a national tragedy, you know, a national disgrace, even like, oh, my God, like because I mean, I mean, I remember where where. You know, you would hear like X will become the next Detroit should this or this transpire, right? You know, right. Um, to actually a story of um, a much more complex and nuanced story because we're beginning to see that Detroit wasn't uh, this kind of isolated disaster, but actually uh, anticipated the contemporary situation. That we are all in Detroit now and that like we better go and figure out like not only what happened socioeconomically in Detroit, which is, uh, I think, a f- in economically and politically in Detroit, which is maybe a straightforward story in some ways, but actually what's happened socially and artistically and what the future of Detroit is, because that could be one of our ways out as a society, American society or whatever. Yeah, and Detroit is, and, and I'm no expert on I don't, Detroit. I don't, I don't get. I've uh, read three books and listened to a bunch of albums. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, I go. Uh, <laughs> but the, do but you think there's? I, I mean, I know you're in Michigan, so maybe you get a biased view. But do you feel like there's like a a, a recent interest in Detroit that is national? Oh, absolutely. I absolutely. There's more interest in Detroit. Some of it's very sort of superficial Detroit is back. You can uh, can get property cheap and uh, uh, gentrify it. And some of it's not even gentrification because it's just it's just sitting there, man. It's not gentrification if it's just sitting (laughs) sitting there. Um, But uh, some of it's just, you know, that's gentrification. Some of it's just superficial nonsense. But some of it's a much a much deeper interest in in the real resilience of like 43 of riots because it's like been, 43 detroit I mean, riots like i i know about them vaguely but this is not something that i would imagine i mean it's the story i mean detroit is when you look at um i mean there's stuff that i mean precedes um one of the um, the Dr. Ossian Sweet, way before 43, um, was in his house in Detroit. I can't put a date on on the top of my head, but it's it's many years before 43 is um, in his house. Um, he's a prominent African-American doctor. Um, some uh, local good old boys, good old boys are harassing him um, and uh, burning crosses and doing the sorts of things they do. Uh, he uh, someone in the house takes a shot out the window, kills one of them. Um, and uh, there's no conviction. Uh, and he remains a prominent leader in the community um, and is important also in, uh, in, in 1943. And there's all kinds of very early interesting stuff happening in 43. There's a lot of leadership for the civil rights movement coming out of, um, I mean, you know, not for us, ancient historians early, but um, uh, things preceding 43 coming coming out of Detroit. And some of the stuff that, uh, especially for the young folks, will be um, 
uh, Black Lives Matter is like, come on, man, we did that. We did that in Detroit, um, not only in 43, but predating 43. This is this is a repeat story. Um, and then, um, I mean, you know more about music than I do, but what, what was happening, um, not just in Motown, which is Motown's super interesting, sure, sure. but it's yeah. also, it's, it's sanitized right. and marketed, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, it's a thing. Um, but there's, there's all the other things related to it, man. There's a lot and it's been there all along. Detroit didn't just, just because the formal, I'm ranting a bit, but just because the formal, monetized, bureaucratized part of Detroit collapsed and uh, there had to be a takeover of the city government. And that doesn't matter to, I mean, it matters a lot. But on the other hand, it doesn't matter to a lot of people who have seen this cycle through again and again. So, yeah, I think um, things like uh, failed city services, um, um, fragmentation of communities. And that's a Detroit story that that goes back a long way. So we, I mean, we talk about this with uh, when I, I can squeeze out the time with some of my uh, uh, colleagues on campus about, um, and it's, you know, I'm, it's not my area of expertise or my area of experience, but um, how, how much, what's happened in the uh, the uprisings of the past few years is is not new. It's been happening here in Michigan for a very long time. It's yeah. OK, that's cool. Let's keep doing it. But not not new. Nothing's changed. It's just the same old. Yeah. 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 And I wonder if the, the growing cultural interest in Detroit, um, you know, there's yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like Motown is known about, right? Some of these big events are known about. Uh, but this growing um, cultural interest in Detroit is uh, that may, may, maybe Detroit um, anticipated this uh, and has, uh, you know, ways ways out uh, that aren't just, uh, you know, more privatization, aren't just, you know, uh, more, more whatever, more government, more privatization, whatever, whatever of these kind of kind of uh, institutional solutions are. Uh, maybe there are uh, deeper, uh, maybe there are solutions that are grounded in the resilience of communities um, and the uh, character of social networks and cultural expression that we can look toward uh, to understand our current situation better and to not just become, um, yeah, to not just become despondent. Right. I mean, there's what you can, there are other cities as resilient as Detroit, but not many. Right. <laughs> what, what city has a population um, and again, I'm talking about the people who actually live there, who've stayed all along, who are more resilient um, and in and in their origins, because much of Detroit is born out of the Great Migration. Yeah. People coming up because there were jobs before World War Two. They're coming up for industry to get away from uh, the oppression and lack of opportunity in the South. Um, and uh, those families and communities just they they keep going and uh, um, the the snapshot stereotypical images don't don't capture what's actually happening there. It's been really frustrating to me because um, it was one of the things I was really interested in learning more about 
coming up here to Michigan is what's going on in Detroit and COVID has just screwed that up. I mean, it's not like I have the time or the ability um, or the skill set to really, you know, get in there and learn a whole bunch. But I mean, it's just, it's truncated the ability to do any of that. But I mean, we're, I'll, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. But it's been uh, like, like our short hiatus in the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it's been, it's, it's been delayed. So I end up doing, you know, the really, I mean, it's fun. I don't mind going to the Detroit Institute of Arts. Um, it's a great museum and, and it's never crowded. Uh, so I, it's one of my favorites, actually. You don't have to look at people taking selfies in front of the art. You can actually see the art. But it's the safe option in a, in a COVID time frame. So that's what I end up doing. It's, I haven't been able to do the more interesting options. Well, it's good. Leave something uh, for the future. Exactly. You get all the good stuff Maybe, uh, all at once, then what do you have for dessert? Exactly. Maybe next week. We'll see. We'll see. I'm not looking at the paper again till Monday, so I don't know. <laughs> All right. Okay. That um, wraps us up for season four, episode one. Um, so thank you for joining us. All right. I'll do it. I'll uh, hopefully this recorded. Um, I'll uh, I won't get to it till this weekend, but I'll type up some quick notes yeah, I'll send you uh, I'll send you some references and links to the stuff I talked about um, yeah some of the more obscure stuff would speed yeah me, yeah, yeah I speed can me along on that I'll leave so, I'll leave it yeah. to Costis to prepare his extensive bibliography on the uh... <laughs> I, I somehow suspect I won't be getting that eh, um, in full but you yeah. never know but you never know so, all right Richard yeah all thanks right. sounds yeah. good all right take care